Thanks to Meredith and her team, as always. Such a blessing to watch. Will you pray with me this morning? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is our fourth week of our sermon series in Lent. It is actually a sermon series we've been doing on covenants. I know a lot of you have been with us through it all, and we are so glad to continue this series this morning. We've talked so far about covenants made with Noah, a covenant made with Abraham and Sarah, and a covenant made with Moses. So this week, we get a brand new covenant. And as a refresher, covenants are not just these kind of one-way things. In each covenant, both parties have a responsibility to the covenant. They commit to do something. God commits, and then those who are with God in this covenant, they also commit to. I've especially enjoyed spending the last few weeks in the Old Testament. I love to see the little hints and breadcrumbs found throughout that point us into the New Testament. It's really quite beautiful how the Old and New Testament work together, how they are essential to one another. Today, we are going to jump from the Old Testament into the New Testament, at least at first, and we are going to be specifically in the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. I can't tell you exactly when I first memorized this scripture, but I know I had to have been in elementary school. I was pretty young. And in many denominations, this verse is essential to the Christian faith. It is the cornerstone of many people's faith. This is the verse that is believed to have, you have to know in order to enter into a relationship with Christ. As an elementary kid, I don't think anybody ever taught me that part of it. If they did, I for sure did not remember that. All I knew is I memorized scripture and I was impressive. I didn't realize pretty much everybody knows this scripture. And while it is a super important verse, it's in the Bible, right? It points to the whole why of the crucifixion and the resurrection. As Methodists, we typically don't believe that having this specific verse memorized is what it takes to be in a relationship with Christ. So I want you all to think back. When did you memorize a scripture, if you did? Were you growing up? Were you little? Were you older? Maybe you've never memorized this, which more power to you. I respect that. I feel like it's taking up some space in my brain a little bit. Maybe you're hearing it right now for the very first time. Whenever you may have first learned it and in whatever context it might have been, for many people, this verse has a very endearing effect it might invoke some type of nostalgia. It might remind you of your childhood or the first community of faith you were involved with. For most of us, it's familiar. 
It may even be a verse we fall back on in hard times. I've found that with familiar things, it's often helpful to find ways to see them in a new light. Our full scripture reading this morning is from John's Gospel. I have two favorite Gospels. I prefer two of the four, and those are John and Mark. Mark, I love because it's super short, so I appreciate the brevity. And I love the kind of comical way the disciples are portrayed throughout. And I really, really like the Gospel of John because it's so unique. It is so different than the other three Gospels. John begins not with the birth of Christ or right before the stories of John the Baptist or Elizabeth. Instead, the book of John begins with a prologue, in the beginning was the word. It's pretty, it's poetic. We actually use that this Christmas as we worship together on Christmas Eve. It's so obviously different than the other Gospels. This first verse of John also introduces a theme that lasts throughout the Gospel of John, this idea of light versus dark. And as we look today at the context of our scripture reading, we'll catch a glimpse of this. With John's gospel, the very first 12 chapters are considered to be the book of signs. They are moments in Jesus' ministry that point to Jesus' identity, that Jesus is the Messiah. That's where our passage today is found. Earlier, I suggested that John 3.16 was a familiar passage to most of us. Yet I would venture to guess that many of us may not know the context in which it is found. We got a little hint from Meredith and Reagan just a moment ago. So as we read this scripture, I encourage you to look for the light versus dark and look for those signs that point to Jesus as the Messiah. We're going to find both of those as we get deeper into this scripture. John 3.16 is found in a conversation Jesus has not with his disciples or not when he's teaching to a big group of people on a mountainside. Instead, this comes in the dead of night when a man named Nicodemus comes to learn from Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, someone who studied the Hebrew law, who knew the law inside out. And he wants to know more about what Jesus is teaching. He knows that something about the way Jesus teaches, something about the things he says is different than what he knows. Nicodemus was a pretty powerful man. He had quite a reputation just being a Pharisee, being a religious man of the law. But he doesn't feel comfortable approaching Jesus in the middle of the day. Instead, he kind of sneaks in at night to know more. Scholars believe maybe he was kind of embarrassed. Maybe he didn't really want to commit to the whole Jesus thing, and he didn't want to be looked down upon for wanting to know more. 
He must be feeling some type of internal struggle. He's embarrassed to talk to Jesus in the daytime, but he can't shake off that desire to know more, to want to know what Jesus is teaching about. That's some of that dark reverse light imagery we talk about. Just after this story with Nicodemus, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the, the day. A woman from the lowest class who meets with Jesus in the day. But that's a whole nother sermon for another day. But hopefully we piqued your interest a little with that. So Nicodemus and Jesus are meeting together, and Jesus is attempting to explain to Nicodemus this idea that as believers of God, as believers in Christ, people can be made new. They can be what Jesus says, born again. Jesus is deep into this explanation to Nicodemus, where we will pick up in our reading this morning. John 3, 14 through 21. Hear these words from the Gospel of John. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up. We'll get back to that whole snake thing, I promise. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged, and whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and the people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. As post-resurrection people, we know what this 16th verse means. We know that it means God came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ to live with humans, to be in community with creation. Nicodemus doesn't know this part of the story he doesn't know what it means for Jesus to be God's son. There's no precedent for this. He doesn't understand these words. He doesn't know what it means to be fully human and fully divine. Honestly, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it sometimes. Nicodemus doesn't understand that God gave God's son to the world. In this story, Nicodemus doesn't look like the smartest, most faithful person. But it's because this is all so new. It's novel. It's something he's never heard before. Jesus is teaching him something that's beyond anything he learned while studying the Hebrew law. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and us that everyone, oh, that he was given to the world as a sacrifice 
It's a truth we all know. While I do not ascribe to using the John 3.16 passage as a solo means to being in a relationship with Christ, I don't think there's something magical about memorizing these words because I think there's more to our relationship. I do believe that this passage reveals who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing with his time on earth. It catches, it gives a glimpse of the ministry and love of Jesus Christ on earth. It reveals that there's light and hope and grace offered. Nicodemus, the Pharisee who meets Jesus in the middle of the night, he's able to catch this glimpse of who Jesus is. And we don't really see him do anything with this knowledge. We don't see Nicodemus go forth a changed, found man who believes in Jesus Christ. Actually, Nicodemus even stops speaking after verse 9. He doesn't talk in any of the scripture we just read. We don't even see Nicodemus again in the book of John until the seventh chapter. And he's not mentioned in any other gospel either. Yet, in the dark of the night, he's taught a little bit about the actual nature of God. And because he had this conversation, we too are taught a little bit about the nature of God. This is a sign of the covenant God makes with all of humanity, a covenant that was fulfilled through Christ's death and resurrection, a covenant of new life, of being born again, of a grace offered to all people. With familiar things, it's often helpful to see them in a new light. Now we all know a little bit more about the context into which John 3.16 was first spoken. Our question today that we each have to wrestle with is what does this mean for us? What is our takeaway? What do we learn in Jesus's explanation of what it means to be made new in Christ, to be a new creation, to be transformed by the work and life and love of Jesus? I'd argue this is where we have to go back to those first few verses of our reading, those weird ones. Let's look at John 3, 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. That's super weird, right? Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness? It is a callback to the Old Testament story, and it's found right before our beloved passage, our John 3.16. Nobody taught elementary Stephanie that there were snakes right before Jesus loved the world. I've spent a lot of time giving us context this morning, so we're not going to go so deep into the story of the snake, 
but we're going to talk about it. It's found in Numbers. So Jesus is actually doing a callback to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers 21, Moses and the Israelites are wandering about in the desert, in the wilderness, like we've seen time and time again. They've just been helped by God in a really, really big way. And then the Israelites are the Israelites. They start saying, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I hate this bread that you provided us. So God sends poisonous snakes, and these snakes bite and kill many of the Israelites. So the Israelites go to Moses, and they say, Moses, we're so sorry for complaining. Can you tell God we're sorry? So Moses goes to God, and God tells Moses to make a rod and to make a snake to be put on top of the rod and to stick it in the ground. So Moses does this. He makes this rod out of bronze with a snake on top. I don't know if he just had a bronze snake mold lying around. Not sure the details there. No judgment to Moses. So Moses puts it in the ground. And now, anytime the Israelites are bitten, they can look to the snake and live. What a reference for Jesus to throw in here. Yet it has to be important for Jesus to mention it. The Israelites needed something to help them in the wilderness. They needed something for when they were bitten, for when they complained, for when they needed grounding, when they needed help. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross isn't a literal bronze snake. It's the love of a God who loves each of us enough to be the sacrifice for each of us. We don't have to say special words. We don't have to memorize specific passages of Scripture we don't even have to lead perfect lives. We can actively make mistakes, and still God's love will reign. Christ's sacrifice is what helps us when we're bitten. It's what helps us when we complain, when we need grounding, when we need help. God doesn't take the snakes away from the Israelites just as God doesn't take away the pains of our world. But we are given a savior. We're given light. We are made into new creations. If we are people who are truly compelled by the words in John 3.16, if we are compelled by the love of Christ, then we are motivated to live our lives in a way that shows signs of this covenant to everyone we come across. Jesus doesn't give Nicodemus or us some ticket out, some hope of an afterlife, so we're only living for the future. We're called into a covenant now. It's an active invitation into a relationship with Christ and our community right here and right now. We are invited to actively draw near to our creator, to learn from the ministry of Jesus Christ, to be an active player in this covenant. We 
as followers of Christ must be made new and transformed in such a way that the love of Christ overflows into all that we do. We never see the rest of Nicodemus's story. Later in John, we see that he actually accompanies Joseph of Arimathea to prepare Jesus's body for burial. But that's it. That's the end of Nicodemus's story in the Bible. How will our stories end? How will our stories point others to the love of Christ through all that we do? Amen.